The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. So why do we fight with one another? Why do we argue and bicker over things that, in the scheme of things, really seem to be stupid? Why do churches split? Why do people get upset and leave churches? Why are there wars? Why are there bullies? Why do people murder and steal? Why do marriages fall apart? Families break up and parents and children turn on one another. Why do we lie and cheat? Why do we insist on having our way and destroying people around us? I think the simple answer is pride. James has been addressing this and he hits us in between the eyes again this morning. In James 4, 6, Brad just read that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. As we look at these verses over the next three weeks, we're gonna look at verses one through 10 uh, in these next two weeks and then 11 and 12 the third week and And I think verse six is really the central theme of what James is trying to communicate to us. That God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is what James says is the testimony of scripture. Job 41, 34 says that God is king over all that that are proud. Psalm 31, 23 says, the Lord preserves the faithful, but the proud he pays back in full. Proverbs 3.34 says he mocks proud mockers, but gives grace to the humble. Luke 18.14 says everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. In other words, James is saying the scripture lets us know the proud will get what they deserve. God opposes the proud because the proud opposes God. The proud are adulterous people, and they sit on the throne that belongs to God. And when pride finds its way in the church, it can destroy her quickly. The bride of Christ. Of all things that can seep into the church, of all the sins, of all the issues and struggles that you and I deal with in the church, there are two that I believe will destroy a church more quickly than anything else because they're like a cancer that spreads and you don't even see it coming. Pride and gossip. I think those are two things that will destroy a a church quicker than anything else. Usually because it's those two things that we tolerate the most. And honestly, I think that most of our sin and most of our struggles come and are rooted in pride. Pride is a serious issue to God. It's a serious issue for James and it should be a serious issue for us today because if we can't kill pride, James says we can't have peace. And if we can't have peace, we can't have the wisdom that comes from God as we've been talking about the last few weeks. And so I want us to look at the passages that we studied last week that that Jack took us through 
because it really sets the context for verses one through four that we're gonna look at this morning. So look at James 3, verse 13 through 18. James writes, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his work in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceful, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so James shows us in these verses that what true wisdom looks like and specifically the difference between what true godly divine wisdom looks like and what false worldly wisdom looks like. And his words are very similar to what we might have heard from Job or the Proverbs or some of the other wisdom literature that we find in the Old Testament. So bear these verses in mind as we look at verses one through four of chapter four this morning. This, these, these really give us a searching diagnosis of what worldly is, worldliness is and the source of what that is. And so let's look at that again, verses four, one through four. James writes to the church. He's writing to Christians, believers in the church. And he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So in the verses that we've just looked at, in James chapter three, verse 13 through 18, James makes two points that are very clear to us. First, he argues that the life that God intends is the product of true or divine wisdom. So if we want to live the life that God intends for us to live, we need to seek after the wisdom that only comes from God. Use the wisdom that he gives us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the second argument that he makes is that for divine wisdom to grow in us, as believers, it needs, to, uh, it needs the environment of a community which is intentional about true peace. So if we want to live the life that God intends for us, we need to seek after the wisdom that comes from God. And in order to cultivate that wisdom, we need to seek out a community that is intentional about living peaceably with one another. About pursuing the peace of God, about pursuing the things of God together. In James chapter four, verse one through four, James is, is gonna show us the antithesis of life lived in accordance with divine wisdom. He shows us what it looks like when the church is pursuing friendship with the world. Now, I wanna be very clear about what this means because when we use this word friendship with the world, I want us to understand the context of that because John three sixteen tells us what? That God so loved the world, but James is telling us that friendship with the world is, is to be an enemy of God. And so when we use that word world, we need to understand the context behind it because John and James are using it in two different ways where God so loved the world, he loved us, he loved 
the human race. He loved the world that he gave everything up to die and pay the ransom for us. When James says friendship with the world is to be an enemy with God, what he's saying is when you pursue the things that the world pursues, when you see the un- un- pursue the unrighteousness that the world pursues, the ungodliness, the unholiness, when you use conventional worldly wisdom and you don't use the wisdom that comes from God, you're opposing God. And so when James talks about friendship with the world, he's saying when you go after the things that the world is going after. So we're gonna look at a little bit of what that looks like this morning. James is telling us to avoid unrighteousness, to avoid unholy living and unholy thinking. In fact, he says, run from it. And so here in verses one through four, he gives us the symptoms of worldliness in the church. He gives us a diagnosis of worldliness in the church. And in verses five through 10 that we'll look at next week, he'll give us his prescription, explaining the solution to the problem but I want us to focus on verses one through four this morning because I want us to pay very close attention because I believe that this is something that the church in every generation has struggled with. This is not just a 21st century church problem. James is writing to the church in the first century and this is an issue that they're obviously dealing with, that they're not living peaceably with one another, that they're not loving one another the way the gospel compels them to love one another. So James is not speaking to something today that is unrelated to our daily lives. The challenge that we face as individuals in the congregation every week, every day of our lives, these are conscious decisions that we have to make. And so James is speaking to us today in the 21st century to deal with an issue that they were still dealing with in the first. So let's look at verse one. It says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So again, James is speaking to the church and there's a problem. There's an absence of peace. That's the issue. And James has already said that peace comes from pursuing the wisdom of God, that it requires community that's committed to true peace and it's not happening in this passage. The church James is speaking to is struggling with this. The community that James is addressing is marked by quarrels and arguments and James traces these disputes back to characteristics of false wisdom that he pointed out in chapter three, envy and selfishness. The fact that James mentions quarrels and fighting reminds us that the early church was not perfect. The early church didn't have it all together. They were having the same arguments, the same struggles, the same difficulties that we have today, we're still fighting these same battles. Why? Because they were human just like we were human. And their nature was the same as our nature. And it was selfishness and it was pride that was at the heart of these fights and these quarrels. And so James is addressing this. The, the, the first century church was not better than the 21st century church. They had issues and things were messy. And tensions between families and people were high. And there was not always harmony and unity. These churches that James is writing to could be likened to the churches that Paul wrote to in Corinth. In fact, something that the quarreling and fighting that James addressed involved actual acts of violence. Remember, there are former zealots in the church, former revolutionaries in the church that James is writing to. The religious climate was very different at that time and the Jewish zealot movement was very influential. 
And so the taking of another's life is not outside the realm of possibilities for the church members as a response of disagreement. And hopefully they weren't doing that, and most think that this is metaphorical language that James is using, but this kind of shows us the significance because infighting and anger toward one another was a serious issue to Jesus. It was a serious issue to James, and he equates it to murder. And I think the metaphor is only fitting, more fitting when James continues to use it to identify the source of these quarrels, that our passions are at war within us. James says that there are fights among you because of passions that are at war within you. He said it's not that your passions is different from that guy's passions and y'all are at war with one another. It says that your passions within you are at war. That there are two different passions fighting against one another. There are two men at war within you. And it leads to fights and quarrels. Selfish passions make believers wage war within themselves as their desire to serve Christ and neighbor conflicts with the desire to serve themselves. What Christ commands of us goes against our very nature. Like you and I, we were designed to survive. Our nature is to survive to take care of ourselves, to meet our needs, to make sure our passions and our desires are being met. And Christ calls us to a different way of thinking, to a different type of life, one that is putting the people around us first. That is not about our own survival, but it's about the survival and the well-being of the people around us, to put others before ourselves. And God is calling us to a different kind of life, That goes against our nature. And James is saying, those two battles are happening within you. Because on the one hand, you want to do the things that Christ commands you, but your nature wants to go against it. We struggle to love God and the people around us because the old man has not been put to death. Remember in Romans, Paul tells us to do that, to put your former self to death, his passions, his preferences, his selfishness, his pride. And we struggle to truly love one another with the love of Christ because there's there's a war that goes on within us. And we still struggle every day to decide which master we're going to serve. And James says that this internal conflict leads to an external conflict. He says in verse two, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. The reality of seeking after our desires is that the methods we will use will always fail. The satisfaction that we seek will never come. So James is warning us about where our envious desires might lead us if we don't put them in check. So James's readers might not be killing each other yet, but quarrels and fights are already evident among them. And if the covetous zeal goes unrestrained, the danger of actual violence could be real. And murder might be an extreme example. 
But if our frustrated desires are not kept in check, our hearts might be led to something as extreme as murder. It is not outside the realm of possibilities for anyone in this room to destroy the people around them to get what they want. When somebody stands in our way, when somebody stands in in front of our passions, when somebody stands in front of our desires and they threaten our survival, our instinct is to destroy that person. And we see this in the church a lot. We see it with our political leaders. I'm seriously tired of watching political commercials in the South because it's all about who's the better Christian. And we watch believers seek to destroy one another to get what they want. And we use our faith as a weapon to kill. If our leaders can't stand on their own merits without destroying the people around them, they don't deserve a platform. But unfortunately, our political system is designed in such a way that that's how the church votes. Who can kill the other Christian first? And it happens in the church all the time. We destroy one another because somebody gets in our way. And James says, you're guilty of murder. Stop murdering one another. Stop killing one another. James is known for echoing Jesus' teaching often, especially the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus' teaching is clearly hinted at here. Because Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount compared the anger and the stirring of the heart to murder. If anyone is angry toward another, then that person has already committed murder in his heart. Hate is potential murder. And as startling as this might be, both Jesus and James force us to realize and come to terms with the depths of our evil and in our hearts and the hatred that we have toward others. Whenever envy and selfish ambition creates battles within us, they disrupt relationships outside us. If we can't put the old man to death in our own lives and we allow that war to continue to rage inside of us, it will eventually destroy the relationships that we have because we'll begin to see everyone as a threat. James is getting to the heart of this issue when it comes to relationships. You can't love one another. You're constantly at war with one another because you're more concerned with yourself, your reputation, your pride, your needs, and you've placed yourself on the throne of your heart where Christ should be. Desires lead to fights because we're so self-absorbed. For example, husbands and wives end up fighting when resources are limited and desires are unlimited. He wants a vacation with the boys. She wants a new dress. So they start to fight over whose money it is. 
And who deserves what they want more? So James says that envy creates these worldly desires. And these desires drive our selfishness and it drives our behavior. And we start quarreling and fighting. And even in relationships as intimate as husband and wife, we lose all understanding of sacrifice and mutual understanding. Our relationships become about what we get out of them rather than what we can give. And it leads to broken hearts and a poor example of the gospel to a watching world. You can trace back broken relationships to selfishness and pride. Because when this war within us happens and we can't put the old man to death, our selfishness wins out and every relationship we have becomes about what we get from it. And when we've received everything that we need to get from that relationship, we're done with it and we move on to the next one. Consuming the resources from the people around us, leaving them dead and empty. crazy is that these selfish passions that control our lives lead us to the point where we can't even pray for one another anymore. Have you experienced that? Where you're so angry with someone and maybe you're hurt that you can't even pray for them? Like, have you gotten to the point where you can't allow yourself to even pray for your spouse? We begin to fear good things for the people around us, even the people that we love. Instead, we get jealous and we start thinking about all the reasons why we deserve it more. And so so James writes in verse three, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Why do we not have satisfaction? Why do we continue to let our inner desires drive our worldly cravings? because we've not actually asked God to fill the cravings that we have. And so we have these passions and we have these desires and we have these, these needs and we, and we wanna survive and we want community and we wanna be accepted and we wanna be loved. And we start looking for them in every place but God. And at the end of the day, everyone leaves us empty and unsatisfied. And James is saying, you're not satisfied because you're not seeking after the one who can give you what you're looking for. Who can meet those needs in your life. Who can give you purpose. The heart is free when we pray for our friends and family and for the kingdom of God and the church. The heart is free when we can pray for friends and family, for the kingdom of God and for the church. But our prayers become so inward focused. Instead of turning to God as the giver of every good and perfect gift, we attempt to satisfy our gnawing wants through our own efforts. 
And we too often fail to follow another of Jesus' teachings from the Sermon on the Mount. Ask and you shall receive. Or we too often ask with the wrong motives. God does not answer every prayer that's directed to him. One commentator said this, if prayer is no more than a formula, say the right words, believe hard enough, confess, it will happen, then Christians are back to a type of magic. They can manipulate God or impose their will on God, for he has to answer. In contrast, New Testament prayer goes out of a trusting relationship with a father whose will is supreme. We cannot let our worldly self-centered desires invade our prayer lives and turn God into a magic genie. James has already told us that our prayer must be in faith without doubting. And so true prayer must not be about our conditions being met, nor about our desires being filled. Because it's even possible to ask for good intention or good things with bad intentions. Like our prayers become so inward focused about meeting the tangible needs that we think we have right now. And, so it, it, and we pray things that, that are good things. We pray for health. We pray maybe we, we really need healing from a disease or a sickness. Maybe we need resources. We need a job. We need to feed our families. But it often just stops at that point that that's the purpose. Like the purpose of my life is to make sure my son has a meal every day. Or the purpose of my life is to make sure that I'm not wrestling with any ailments and illness and disease. And our prayers never go further than that. My God, if, if the testimony of the gospel is going to go forth and you want to use my disease to do that, your will be done. Make me content. The purpose of my life is not to store up treasures on this earth. The purpose of my life is not to make sure that my son has three meals a day. The purpose of my life is to make sure the gospel is going forth. And however God wants to use my testimony to do that, my prayers have to stop being so inward and selfish focused of saying, God, heal me. Why? Jesus didn't heal people in the New Testament for their sake. He did it for the sake of the gospel. To show his glory and his power and the power of the gospel to transform a life. He didn't see a lame man on the, on the, on the ground or a, or a blind guy and say, well, that just shouldn't be. That's not fair. Let me heal him so that he can feel better. I'm going to show the power of the gospel. So I'm going to heal this guy, not for his sake, but for the sake of the gospel. When we can begin to pray that way, and our, our prayers become more eternal focused, and we begin to pray for the people around us, we begin to pray for our church, we begin to pray for our pastors and our leaders for the sake of the gospel, with an eternal mindset, not a temporal mindset, then our prayers become more like Jesus's. God, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. But not my will be done. Yours. 
Jesus, his flesh, didn't want to suffer the pain. It didn't want to suffer the agony. It didn't want to suffer the burden that would come with going to the cross and being crucified. But his prayer was outward focused. He had an eternal mindset. It's not about me. It's about the gospel. It's about the will of God going forth. This is how Paul describes people with selfish ambition. In Philippians 3.19, he says that their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. Why would God answer the prayer of a believer who wants to live like an enemy of Christ? It's difficult for us not to be so inward focused because we're tangible people. We see the here and now, and we often live for the here and now because we pray for things that will help our survival, like resources and health. But the gospel calls us to command and commands us to live and think different. When our hearts are positioned before ourselves, our prayers are about us what we prefer, what we want to happen. Our goal is to get God on our page. Jack tells a story often when we talk about these kinds of things about a lady who wanted to buy a beach house. She really wanted this beach house. And so she really began to pray and say, God, if you give me this beach house, I'm gonna let missionaries stay at it. She got the beach house. No missionaries stayed there. But it's like, we pray that way. Like we can manipulate God. Like we, we can trick God and say, God, if, if you do this, if you give us this money, we're gonna live off 10% of it. And we're gonna give all the rest of it away. We're gonna give it to the church and we're gonna feed people and we're gonna do all these things. It's like we try to trick God to change his mind. And prayer is not about changing God's mind because God does not change his mind. Prayer is about changing our mind. It's about aligning our will and our mind to the will and mind of God. Prayer is for us to understand the heart of God because God already knows our hearts. We can't manipulate God. We can't trick God. We can pray for good things with bad intentions. And James is saying that Christ desires for your intentions to be about the gospel because that's why you're here. In verse four, he says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So craving, desiring, or lusting after worldly things instead of solely desiring God is a form of idolatry. The nation of Israel was bound to, to God through a covenant that's very similar to a husband and wife and a marriage covenant. So turning to any other idol was considered to be spiritual adultery. And James is very clear that this is what's happening right now. So by seeking friendship with the world, pursuing the desires of their own hearts, believers have committed spiritual adultery against God. And so James wants his readers to see that their compromising conduct 
that he wants them to see it for what it really is. God tolerates no rival. Because when you seek after the things that the world is pursuing, when you use conventional worldly wisdom to make your decisions and to live your life, you make yourself an enemy of God. You begin to oppose God. And James says that God tolerates no rival. And so when believers behave in a worldly manner, they demonstrate that at that point, their allegiance is to something else rather than to God. And no one can be friends with God and friends with the world. No one can serve two masters. By giving into their desires, by seeking after the satisfaction that the world can provide, these people were in fact opposing God. We cannot be friends with the world and friends with God. And if we decide to deliberately foster friendship with the world, then we become guilty of unfaithfulness to God. When we pursue the things that only this world can give, we've put ourselves on the throne of our hearts, and that's idolatry. And I think at the heart of our sinfulness, and at the heart of our selfishness, and at the heart of our pride, we've become worshipers of ourselves. Here's what our society is. Our society is acquisitive. It, it defines happiness in terms of what we have. Bank accounts, homes, clothes, cars. Or it defines happiness in terms of notable experiences. Fine restaurants, sporting events, ski trips, tours of Europe. Job titles. Our society is merit-based. Our value and position depend on some measure upon our parents' status and in great measure upon our accomplishments. But we can rise above our lineage. We can make something of ourselves if we get a good education, if we work hard and we reach our goals. We hear often parents say, I want to provide for my kids, everything that I didn't have growing up. And what we often get are kids who grow up and die with a lot of stuff and no relationship with Christ. There's nothing wrong with success. There's nothing wrong with being a successful person in your career. There's nothing wrong with providing things for your family and your kids, but when it becomes the driving force of why we live, and if it becomes the thing that we're pursuing, and if we hang on to those things with a closed fist and we can't hold it before God and say, God, this is yours, use it how you want, and take it away if it will destroy me, then it's become our idol. Our society is self-promoting. One professional football carries a a Sharpie and a sock so ever, after every time he catches a touchdown pass, he can sign the ball and hand it off while millions watch on TV. Another scores and quietly hands the ball to the referee. One hides a cell phone in the, on the field somewhere so after he scores, he can take it and call his friends. Another scores and quietly pats his teammate on the back. 
The braggart's credo is, I'm so good, I can hardly stand it. The humble man says, what a privilege to play for my team and my coach. The humble men catch more passes for more yards on more successful teams, but the baggards get more media coverage. In the abstract, there's nothing wrong with accomplishments or acquisitions. We should make the most of the skills and opportunities that God gives us. But we cannot accept the system that says, I must acquire to be happy so that I know I am somebody. I must rise higher or I am a failure. In God's economy, it's different. All humanity has honor. We must treat everyone with the dignity because we're all created in the image of a holy God. The world says to invest in relationships that benefit you, that make you more successful, that gets you where you want, so your passions, your desires, your survival is met. But God values relationships differently. He says to invest in the lowly, to pursue relationships where you can give, where people can see the love of Christ, relationships where you may never get anything in return. Because isn't that what Christ did for us? We cannot adopt the values of the culture in our church. And we cannot exploit the people around us for our own gain. The gospel compels us to do this, that we must die to ourselves, that we must die to our preferences, die to our need to be right, die to our reputations. If we can't do this, then how will the generations coming behind us know the gospel? How can they know the things that Christ values if we can't show them? I'm so thankful that I don't see this a lot in our church, but I have seen it in churches and I think that every church will struggle with this, even us. Many churches and and honestly, many generations outside the church have adopted the mentality of, well, I've paid my dues. And so we consume all the resources for ourselves and invest nothing in the generations behind us. We use all the ministry dollars. We spend time investing in ourselves, our own Bible studies, our own activities, and we rarely consider what we might offer those less than us or weaker than us or those growing up in the wake of our lives. And that's the mentality of the world. Take as much as I can and leave nothing behind because don't I deserve it? Haven't I earned it? And here's God's economy. Spend yourself on the people around you. Inconvenience yourself for the people around you. And let's stop justifying our selfish pride. And let's start living out the gospel for the sake of the gospel. Church, if if there's one word that I can leave you with, if there is one message 
that I hope would resonate in your hearts. It's that God loves you desperately and he gave everything he had for your freedom. Let's treat one another the same way. That's what the gospel compels us to do. To live at peace with one another. To love one another. To die to ourselves so that others may live. Amen? Let's pray together. God, this is such a hard truth to live. It's such a difficult thing to practice because it goes against my very nature. But God, may your spirit move through this place. And may you give us the power to live out the gospel in our lives. May you give us the power to put the old former self to death so that we might live in Christ. May you give us the courage to die so that those around us might live. May you give us the freedom to spend ourselves, to pour out ourselves for the people around us. And may we trust that you will breathe life back into us, only to be poured out again. And God, may our prayers become more focused on how we can be a testimony of the gospel. rather than a testimony of our own accomplishments. May we see your goodness and may we experience true joy and peace that only comes from you. And may we live peaceably together as we build your kingdom and labor together for the sake of the gospel. Before you leave this morning, before, if you have kids in the kids' ministry, before you leave, I'd love for us to spend just a few moments worshiping together. I would love for us to experience time of family. As Brad leads us in these songs, because this is important and how we respond to the word of God together. Together is important. So you guys stand and let's worship.